humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 142, and it took place across the miles from Nashville to Thailand. I sat down and over Skype had a chat with Ash Gallagher. She's a war correspondent, photojournalist, author. She goes into the craziest of places to get the story, to talk to the people, to connect uh, with humans about what's going on around them. Uh, her website is really interesting. Go to, if you go to ashgallagher.com, you can see uh, posts of her work from Iraq and Palestine and Israel and it's all sorts of places. And I recommend doing that for sure. Uh, really beautiful, touching work. Um, Ash and I connected over Twitter, and uh, she was very gracious to give me a little bit of time to sit down and, and learn about what she does. I've always been fascinated by photojournalism. Um, it's incredibly dangerous, and it's important, you know, to get the stories out and since war has existed, there have been people, civilians, you know, on the front lines getting the story um, from all the angles, all the perspectives. <clears throat> so I really enjoyed learning about uh, what Ash does and how she sees the world and how she translates what she sees back to the rest of us. Um, yeah. Well, let's see. Usual stuff. Um heyhumanpodcast.com has got links for every episode and I encourage you to check that out because I spend you know a good amount of time curating those lists a lot of information there uh, also on the main Hey Human website is the contribute button if you are a fan of Hey Human and you'd like to see it keep going uh, take a moment and hit that contribute button and whatever you can uh, contribute, I would be most grateful to that. Um, you can also contribute by shopping on Amazon through the Amazon portal, also on the heyhumanpodcast.com website. Of course, social media, which is everywhere. Um, we've got Hey Human Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. And then my personal, I have Twitter on Susan Ruthism, S U S A N R U T H I S M. So that's Twitter and Facebook and Instagram for my personal one. You can also check out SusanRuth.com. I try to keep that updated. You're getting a lot of information today. And of course, if you're into music, guess what? I have records. Uh, you can go to iTunes and search Susan Ruth and find uh, quite a pile of songs that I have put out over the years. So check that out as well. If nothing else, you can just hear another aspect of me and what I do. Um, you can email me, Susan, at heyhumanpodcast.com. Uh, I look forward to emails, of course, um, and I get them here and there. And uh, if anybody has any questions for me or wants to recommend uh, someone that I should converse with for the show, please uh, send that email in. I'm excited for uh, spring training this year because I sat down with Eric Nadell, the voice of the Texas Rangers, and so that episode's going to be coming soon. Um, a lot of really good shows coming up. I'm very excited about. Thank you for listening, everyone. I really appreciate it. And please stay safe and warm during this winter freeze that we are experiencing. Uh, I've got a niece up in Chicago who is 
freezing her butt off, I'm sure. Um, mostly I'm really concerned about, you know, the people that are homeless and who maybe don't have the money to keep their heating bills on and things like that. So if you see people out there and uh, your neighbors or strangers or whatever, and they look like they could use a helping hand, you know, be that helping hand. And we're all in this together. And some days are harder than others. And some days are colder than others. All right. Um, thanks for listening. And I hope you enjoy. And here we go. Ash Gallagher, welcome to Hey Human. Thank you. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to talk to you. Absolutely. You are in Thailand right now? I am. I am in Thailand right now. How long have you been there? Um, since early August. Yeah, I left Iraq kind of last week of July, early first week of August. And how long were you there? Well, I've been based in Iraq for about two years, a little over two years. Um, June 2016 is when I had first gone. I had been in the Middle East, though. I had been traveling and doing Middle Eastern stories since about 2012. Okay. And then in 2014, I kind of made the permanent move to the region. And then two years later, I, I um, went into Iraq. Okay. Well, let's go backwards and start kind of at the beginning. So did you, you started in photojournalism, I'm assuming, or did you educate somewhere else? Well, I ended up having like a two-year degree at a small school in Colorado, mm -hmm. uh, which is where I grew up. And, um, and I was working for like ragtag weekly newspapers. Um, in Colorado, I worked in one in Florida because I had moved down to Florida at one point. And, um, and then I moved up to Atlanta and actually worked for CNN for eight and a half, probably almost nine years from and first day to last day. Under what capacity at CNN? Um, I was, I did a variety of jobs. So everything from basically being the studio hand, um, which is kind of the entry level position to being on the news desk, which is where they sort of take care of all the reporters, um, and sort of help bring in all of, uh, the news to, um, to actually have have it put on air. So uh, it was a variety of things. I, I did some writing. I did, you know, kind of a variety of things, anything in the newsroom that anyone would teach me or any job that I could get. One of the beautiful things about CNN really was you kind of had the ability to sort of move around based off your desire, uh, your skills, your desire to learn more, to get creative, um, and so forth. And that was actually something I appreciated. There's a, there's a group of us that would say we, we were sort of went to school at CNN because, um, you know, there was such a, in a way you get such an education sort of going through the ranks a little bit, um, in the newsroom itself. Were you planning on being an on-air journalist or what, what did you want? Uh, I, to be honest with you, I chose kind of a producer track. So to me, being behind the scenes is way more interesting. Um, and I, I started out writing. I started out writing with newspapers. So that's that's where I had my strong suit. Um, and producers behind the scenes, they typically... Um, they typically do a little bit of everything. Um you know, as time went on and, 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 you know, when I was doing more in the field, there was, there was a need certainly to, to, uh, be on air. And, and so I kind of am willing to do it and, and just started doing it. So then I was, I was doing a little, I really was doing everything. Cause, uh, when I went freelance, I became one woman band. 
I know what that's like. Um, <laughs> no, definitely. Definitely. It's, it seems like a lot of professions want people who dabble in a little bit of everything for maybe cost effectiveness or whatever. But, um, you know, journalism is no different in that sense. Yeah. Was there, um, did you have a particular kind of story that you liked going after? Or was it all whatever you got since you were in that phase of life of learning everything? Um... Well, I knew at 19 that I would be a war correspondent. It, it, you know, I mean, it was just, it was also sort of the first crazy thing that I voiced to a mentor and friend that I wanted to do. And they said, yes, like they looked at me and said, okay, well, let's, let's, let's figure out how to get you there. Um, and, and so I, you know, I, so I took it on. It's, it's one of those things where, I had no idea what that was going to look like. And I had no idea how long it was going to take. It was just sort of in me to think, oh, well. And I think on some level, every journalist who starts out, the idea of being a war correspondent, like everyone kind of wants that because there's there's a romanticized view of it. Um, obviously, when you get there, that changes. It's not romantic at all. Um, you know, forgive my language, but it's fucked up, mm-hmm. <laughs> actually. You know what I mean? Didn't Michelle Pfeiffer um, star in a movie uh, with Robert Redford about being a war correspondent? It's like up close and personal or something. Do, do you know that movie? You know what? That's not a film I know, and I probably should. Yeah, um, and it very much romanticized it. And, of course, it has dastardly turns in every direction. But, um, I mean, as a 19-year-old to say, yes, I want to go and do this... It must have had a glamour initially. I mean, sure, it, it did because the people that you were seeing on TV. I mean, in the in the early '90s, you know, you're watching the stuff that's in Bosnia, and you're watching the reporters who are reporting on Rwanda, and you were watching, you know, the first Gulf War um, in Iraq, and so you know, there's lots of things. I do think that 9/11. I was 18 years old when 9/11 happened, and that opened up a whole new world um, when it came to the Arab world in particular, um, and so I think that that became an interest. I, I didn't know necessarily that that's where it would end up. I think I think studying Vietnam in college a little bit also pushed me. Um, and I mean, Vietnam opened up journalism for women uh, a lot. And it was, you know, really the first war, maybe maybe some in Korea, but really the first war in Vietnam where you could come home at night and you could watch it on TV. It wasn't necessarily live, but you were getting you were getting feed, you were getting video, you're getting photos in a way that, that hadn't really quite been covered the same way in World War II. So Vietnam opened up journalism in a really big way um, for a lot of people, and I think that that pushed me in that direction as well because there was just something that drew me to that idea. I look back now, and we'll sit here and admit. Um, honestly, but delicately that, you know, it was a war of another kind for me that, that I already understood. And in a way, my own psychology was probably drawn to that. How do you mean? Um, I mean, growing up was, was not the easiest, easiest space to be in, right? There were, there were a lot of, um, there were a lot of abuses. There was a lot of fights. There was a lot of things that were, um, that were not really great as a kid. 
And so um, having there's 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 an element within the psyche that I have come to believe that the most personal sociological circumstances can be applied on a global platform because the same rules apply, right? It's, it's the idea of power over another person, right? Um, and, and um, you know, one of my favorite quotes comes from a, a Irish theologian who says, war is the inability to have conflict. And the idea behind that is that you're not really solving a problem when you're at war. You're sort of actually ignoring the problem. You know, there's, there's not really a dialogue. Um, and so all you're really doing is fighting over something that is often much bigger than it is than if you were to actually hash out whatever the conflict is or whatever the problem is. And I think that's on a personal level with one or two people, and I think that's that's true on a, on a national or, or global level as well. Um, and, um, and I think that's been part of my space, that's been part of my energy for a long time. And even if at 19 I didn't know that or didn't understand that, I can kind of look back and see that now. And how old are you now? I'm 35. Okay. So growing up in your own personal war zone, it, it has its preparational uh, road, I yes. guess, for lack of a... <laughs> it does. Um, I mean, it's... It, it's... You, as a kid, when you feel like you are combating with two people who are very much into their own to their own selves um you know I have one sibling but you know the, the, the truth is is we we both were in a situation where the people we were raised with didn't um didn't even have their own sense of self and because of that you know they were at war with each other and it put us through a lot and um, it doesn't mean that they're the worst people that have ever existed I don't think that really of anyone um, but it, it does mean that that how they projected their own stuff um, came out came out almost it came out violently mm-hmm. um, and and it put us in the middle and that that wasn't always exactly fair to themselves or to us um, and so I think that that <clears throat> That created that created a mindset of of survival. Mm. It created a mindset of um, of of trying to understand what tribe means versus community. Um, and I've been very grateful in my life to have to have community, uh, to have people who sort of uh, you know filling gaps, who encouraged me, challenged me, pushed me, that served as mothers and fathers and aunts and uncles and friends and so forth in ways that maybe that didn't happen. Um, And I'm very at peace with that. But, you know, that very same concept, I think, translates into, into, you know, a much more national stage. People take sides. People uh, try to create their tribe. They try to create their alliances uh, in order to be right. Mm. Um, and, and, and that can often, and that can often harm others if you are not in a space where you are being, where you are being considerate, gracious, um, or, or forgiving of other people. What you bring up, I find really, um, so intriguing because as a journalist, it's, it's imperative. It's an integral part of being a journalist to not have biases and yet, especially these days, right, journalism is filled up with, and maybe it always has been, but it seems to me 
you harken back, there was a time when it was a more balanced journalistic integrity kept things going and, and reported a story. So how do you get out of the way of your own personal biases when you are covering a story? We'll get to what you've been, what you've seen and what you've done, but I'm just in the, in that, well, where do you, where do you come from in that? Uh, I hear your question. And the truth is you don't. I don't actually believe that it's it's possible to not have a bias or not have a lens that you're seeing things through. Every reporter, every single reporter, even the best ones, they're still sort of reporting through their own mm. lens a bit. Now, there is ways to be fair. Um, there is ways to try and give each side a chance to speak for themselves rather than hearsay. Um, but, you know, it, it's it's come out recently. Christiane Omnipore, who works for CNN, she's certainly a, a heroine for, for a lot of female journalists. You know, she talks about the fact now that um, she, you know, her goal is to be truthful rather than uh, the, 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 rather than basically just straight objective because it really isn't it's not really about being objective it's about just being honest it's about telling the truth um and sometimes you know even even the bad guy gets a chance to speak for himself but the but the truth is he's also going to show his true colors people show you who they are so in a way there's there's actually a value sometimes you know people say well, why would you have an interview with someone who's you know maybe they're isis maybe it's assad maybe it was gaddafi when he was interviewed uh, when he was alive or whatever but the honesty is is that they're going to show who they truly are and people are going to see them for who they are so all we've really done is is help give them a platform to show the truth of who they are which is often not so good and i think it's confused um, with the idea ahead. of giving someone a platform to speak to who they are versus giving someone a platform and the sentence ends there. It's, there's a big difference. That's a great way to put it. That's actually a great way to put it. Uh, when people speak the truth, they automatically show who they are. Um, and, and sometimes that's for good or for ill, but it, it, it's always the case. Um, what is it, the cliche that says, uh, when someone, is it Maya Angelou maybe, that said something to the effect of, um, when people tell me who they are, I believe them. Um, but I think, I think that's the case. And I think in journalism, I, you know, there's, there's constantly a war over, are we being fair enough? Are we, you know, why aren't we talking about this side or that side? I think we do the best we can. I think every journalist has their own lens just as we're people too. You know, we vote, we have opinions, we have families, whatever. Um, at the same time, we're doing the best we can to try and make sure that we give people the platform to tell their truth. Mm. Um, and that's, and I think that's, that's actually more important um, than necessarily always uh, taking sides. Um, at the end of the day, there is, there is, there is right and wrong in the world that we've decided you know, I mean, certainly, um, you know, stripping children from parents or, you know, things that involved, involved children at war or, you know, any variety of those kinds of things. Those aren't, those aren't good things. We've decided as societies that they aren't. So when those things are happening, it's the media's responsibility to try and show it to the best of our ability. Um, you know, I know that different sides of the media are going to get accused of all kinds of things. They will. There's propaganda everywhere. There's mm -hmm. propaganda not just in the United States, but across the world. Every country has its own propaganda machine. Um, 
but that doesn't negate the fact that there's great storytellers out there and there's great opportunities for people to see a news program or listen to a news program and actually get informed and develop their own opinion. Mm -hmm. I do think when people are telling um, an untruth as, as what is that saying? Uh, A lie is halfway around the world before the truth can put on its trousers. And, and it's, it's, it resounds, obviously for a reason i think people know when they're not hearing the truth but a lot of times it doesn't matter because it's feeding their own anger or their own volition you know? well and that's the other factor to it right so you are going to have people who are going to we're also going to perceive things in different ways like I could say the same sentence to you and say it to someone else, and the two of you will hear two different things. We could each look at the same painting and see two different things. Uh, The fact is, is communication is always subjective. So someone who sees a news story is going to see it through their lens. It's going to be told through one lens and seen through another lens. And if it feeds their anger, if it feeds their... Um, their frustration, um, and whether that's for good or for ill, whether that's justice or injustice, um, the fact is, is that it is on them how they perceive it. Uh, It's a cyclical cycle, though, right? So we could say, does the media have a responsibility? Yes, but the audience also has a responsibility. Um, And and there's... when you see or hear or read something, you have to decide what it means to you uh, and and what you're going to do with it from there. And and unfortunately, we had a situation that has, you know, come out over social media during the last, you know, the last presidential election where there was a lot of confusing messages. There were a lot of lies that were put out there. There were a lot of there were a lot of um, untruths that were told to mix people up to create chaos. And that happens, too. Um, so at the end of the day, people, I think, have to take responsibility uh, in order to say, you know, journalists have to take responsibility and say, okay, I'm going to present the facts as I know them, as I have them, through the lens that I have. But the audience also has a responsibility to say, okay, what do I believe about the situation? Are there other sources? Are there other ways to mm-hmm. look at this? Mm-hmm. Is this worthy of being angry about? Some things are probably worthy of being angry about. Other things, maybe not so much. Um, I certainly and believe... people choose to believe a lie, yeah, that's on them. I think that ultimately critical thinking is the most important aspect of any information you're given. I would agree with you, and I don't think that that's... I, I feel like we need more of that in our education systems. We need more of that um, promoted within even our newsfeed. I do feel like sometimes political shows become just nothing but debates, whereas I feel, you know, the responsibility of the media, and I'm, I'm the first to critique in my own, my own sometimes, and that is um, there needs to be more opportunities for discussion and critical thinking. Um, there are some shows out there that are some places that do that um and but then you know there's a lot more that sort of play on the entertainment factor of the the debates and and that's and that's on us we need to do better in that we need to we need to be better we need to present better we need to deliver better um and that and that part is on us it's also curious as to where people put their outrage over things you know the choice of of where you spend not you but the royal you spends energy on outrage is it's always just it's crazy to me <laughs> the things that rile people up that don't matter versus and, and that's a judgment call on my part of course but 
but I think, man, there are so many bigger things going on in the world that, you know, why are you outraged that Kim Kardashian, you know, straightened her kid's hair? I don't know. It's just, it's strange to me, this sort of, this weird confluence of pop culture into everyday news cycles now. It's these, we really have become uh, a hyper cartoon version of ourselves the caricature you know, there's, of ourselves. there's a there's an up and a downside to that um i will i will wholeheartedly admit, admit that sometimes i love a good entertainment magazine to sit by the pool and read and i have no idea how much of it's true and it's probably a lot of bs but um i i remember when i was working at cnn there was a particular anchor he always loved doing like the Britney Spears stories or the Kim Kardashian story because it was a break from the the, the political heaviness mm. that was happening. Now, I'm not saying that that necessarily should be the focus of everything we do, but there is some room for it. There is some value for it. Um, in in a way, I look. I'm I'm not saying that a person shouldn't have a moment of peace and chill and not think about the grander things. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is where Sorry. people choose to put their outrage. If you're getting outraged over how a celebrity, you know dates or doesn't date or breaks it that's what i'm saying when there's you know no, no, no. and you're right and you're right and there shouldn't else. be an outrage it should be something that we sort of toss aside in a way that's just saying you know this is just you know this is just fun or whatever yeah. um it's supposed to be something that doesn't give us too much to think about um which which is which i totally get you're right people put their outrage on things that are completely unnecessary. Um, however, we are now in a system where entertainment celebrity has crossed into our politics, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when you've got, I don't know, a celebrity in the White House and who's inviting other celebrities. Well, and he's not and the first. are people who are known yeah. to say things just for the reaction, sure. right? They're shock jocks all over the place. Right. And he's where not the we, first you know, reality, you know, guy, celebrity guy, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, governor, and uh, the mayor of Carmel, of course, Clint Eastwood. And I mean, celebrities have had those kind of positions. They have, but not leader of the free world. No, not leader of the, you know. I'll put you know free, free world in quotes <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> Freer than most. Right. And, and granted, it's, it's a title, right? You, yeah. know, you start to look at other countries and go, oh, well, that, that seems to be grass is a little bit greener. But the point is, is with the United States, the United States, especially militarily, is one of the, is the largest phenomenon probably the world has ever seen. We have hundreds, literally hundreds of military bases across the globe. No other country has that. Um, So we definitely have an enormous responsibility in the world. But not only do we have enormous responsibility, but we're, it's incredibly imperialistic in its own way. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, and so that being said, the image that we give off to others or the image that our government gives off to others. Um, it's funny because I get questions all the time from foreigners who will say, but you know, do you, what do you think about this person or that person? Or, you know, we don't, you know, because they're, we've also done a lot of our, our country's done a lot of damage in the world. And my response is usually, look, the people are not their government. Um, and that's, that's the same in every country. People can identify with that, right? Because if you go to 
Iraq, if you go to Syria, if you go to Lebanon, if you go to Palestine, if you go to any number of Asian countries, Turkey, anything, people on the street, your everyday people, they're going to sit there and say the exact same thing. We're not our government. They criticize. Yeah. They're trying to live their life, right? Food for their kids, a roof over their head, Mm -hmm. making sure their kids can go to school, safety, you know, not getting robbed, shot, bombed, whatever it might be. The point is, that's that's the universal universal uh, way of living, which Mm -hmm. is, I just want to be able to exist within my own community my own space and have safety and food and sleep and 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 that's and that's everywhere so yes while while we have an enormous responsibility in the world simultaneously the people of the united states the american people are really like everyone else in the world we don't necessarily always like our government um but we are an incredibly welcoming nation and and so when people hear that they almost like there's almost like a sigh of relief because Mm -hmm. everyone wants to still believe that you know we're still free people when did you have your first overseas uh assignment well i went overseas in 2012 so i had been when i was growing up i had gone to mexico a few times and so forth but i hadn't left the continental the northern north american continent and um and so in 2012 i took my first trip i just kind of up and went um i had a couple of friends from cnn who were really good people a reporter and a cameraman that i had been talking to through my job at cnn and they had just said look come uh, this is really what you want to do. Just take the risk. Just do it. And, you know, and I got there and they were they introduced me. They showed me around a little bit. I went on to Beirut um, within a matter of weeks and did the same thing. Friends that I had that just sort of showed me around, gave me the ropes. And so over the course of 2012, 2013, I started taking on or, or trying to work through some of my first assignments. Um, and then it really picked up. Um uh, when I moved out there in 2014, I had a couple of stints with Al Jazeera uh, in there as well, where I would kind of work some temporary stuff in the New York and Doha newsroom. But once I went to Gaza, as I feel it, it sort of picked up uh, from there as far as how much work I was doing um, as far as assignments and stuff are concerned. Did you have a, any major shockers when you first did that? I mean, aside from the fact that you're going into war zones, but you're also a woman, you know, which puts you at another level of vulnerability. Um. My first real, I mean, if I, if I were to say first, you know, first front line at that point is, is Gaza. Uh, the 50-day war that happened in um, July and spilled over into August 2014. Uh, in a way, I would say I feel a bit privileged because um, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict I don't want to say that it's. I don't want to say that it's safer than most. That sounds like I'm downgrading it because it's not. Um, it's just that, like you, kind of there's there's a sense of of who your allies are, right? I mean, the Israelis and the Americans are very tight allies. Um, you know, a lot of Palestinians uh, who are vying for the world's attention appreciate when the reporters come in. Um, and so there's a lot you can do. Um, a lot of people, people will talk to you. Uh, people will, will uh, are, are eager to share their stories. Uh, going into Gaza, you know, there, there was a 
two, three hotels in this one particular area where um, all of the journalists stayed, whether you were a staff reporter or a freelance reporter. Um, and the truth was, you know, Hamas, who runs Gaza, they, they, for the most part, they were actually fairly friendly to us. I did not have a personally bad experience. There may be other reporters who would report differently. But at the time, they were very eager for the world to know their side of it, whether it be right or wrong, whether you want to criticize it or not. And so in that sense, there was a sense of wanting to be helpful because they want you to, they want to make their side look good. Um, and, and there were definitely, there were definitely plenty of, you know, criticism to go around. Um, but that was also a situation where the Palestinian people continued to get pounded on night after night, after night, after night. And the, the Israelis have incredibly powerful weapons, um, bankrolled mostly by the United States and Europe. That's right. Um, and and the Palestinians don't have those weapons, so there was definitely a discrepancy yeah. on the Palestinian side at that fight point. At all? No, it really wasn't. And 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 so, in a sense, though, there was a space at that point where I feel like yes, there were some su- surprises. But as a woman in that particular situation, I actually didn't feel unsafe mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in that in that particular circumstance. That doesn't mean that I was completely safe. There was always a chance you were going to get hit. There's always a chance that, you know, you're going to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. But from the perspective of being a woman, that part wasn't really, at least in, at least in the Palestinian conflict, that wasn't an issue. A little bit different doing stories on Syria or Iraq. Uh, much, much different um, in, that, in that situation because you had militia groups and you had Daesh or ISIS um, that that um, that was known to kidnap women um, and journalists who were known to be kidnapped and so forth. And so that was a slightly different situation, in my opinion. So as I began to cover those stories, uh, different kinds of precautions had to be taken um, in those in those circumstances. I want to talk about that a little bit. Um, but first, I want to go back to Gaza. Um, what are some of the stories that you can recount, if there's anything in particular that comes to mind? Um, you know, definitely one of the, the stories that sticks out in my mind is I actually covered a story where um, two, two gravediggers actually were killed. Uh, they, they did not have weapons. They had shovels. Uh, they were digging several graves a day. Uh, they were out there quite a bit, um, and it, it, it impacted me a lot. And basically, a bombing had happened very, very early in the morning, almost before anybody was up. Um, and and so my uh, translator, we also call them fixers, fixer meaning they literally fix you up with the story. Um, um, so he and I went out, and really, really young kid, really good, really smart. So we, we go out to the cemetery, and I said, we got to cover the story. We get there, and some of the locals were like, don't go in there. Don't walk in the cemetery. It's too dangerous. It's too dangerous. We've, we've removed where their bodies were, and... And it's just really, really dangerous. And we're like, really? We just we want to see the site. We want to see where it happened. We want to see, you know, what, where exactly they got hit. So we decided to just, like, make a run for it. We're going to do it really quickly. We go in uh, to the cemetery, and I can hear the buzzing of a drone, of an Israeli drone overhead. 
and it's getting closer and closer and closer and closer and it just gets louder and louder and there's there's a really bad recording because my camera wasn't working very well but there's a really bad recording of the two of us running through and my translator telling me look there's blood there's the shoe this is where it's happened but you can hear us breathing really fast because there's a, a that buzzing sound and, and the drone may have actually also been interfering with it but you can hear it really really loudly and I mean I was actually it was one of the first times I was terrified of actually being hit and so we booked it out of there and as soon as we got out you know we took a deep breath and took a break for a few minutes and then just asked the locals we said where's the families uh, and then went to go and interview and talk to the families um, but it was it was the belief was the Israelis believed that the that Hamas was hiding the their weapons um, underneath the cemetery or potentially underneath the mosque. Now, that may be true. That may not be. I couldn't actually tell you. Uh, there were tunnels all the way through Gaza, so it's very possible that there were lots of weapons in those places. But um, at the end of the day, we don't know if they would have been able to tell who we were or not mm-hmm. because the two grave diggers were, they thought, were were militants and they were killed on the spot um and every you know the witnesses from around the entire the entire village area said look these were the guys that were digging the graves for our sons and daughters every single day so it's one of the more complicated stories that i did because it was one of the first stories where i felt like there was there was an actual threat um you know and uh, we did our best to sort of get out of there. Uh, there were definitely a few misses, a few bomb misses. You know, you got reporting or talking to a family and, you know, a couple hundred meters away, uh, something lands. Um, a lot of the fighting was actually done at night. Um, that was actually a big thing for me uh, because you're the sound in your ears begins to play to play a rhythm uh you know after dark you would hear hamas basically shoot off rockets from the ground uh depending on you know where you were you might be able to feel it most people would go inside at night um and then you would hear a response from the israeli military so it would be kind of this this rocket from the ground and then all of a sudden a huge explosion which would usually come from the from the Israeli uh, aircraft. Um, and that would go on until about three or four o'clock in the morning. You'd get a couple hours of sleep, maybe, and then be up again at 6 a.m. to get to the latest to the latest explosion, latest disaster. There was definitely fighting during the day, but it was mostly done at night uh, because the summers are exceedingly uh, hot. I mean, just it's the heat is excruciating um, in July and August. Um, so... You know, those are those are some of the things that sort of stick out to me from from Gaza. How did you start to process all that? Or did you just you were in the moment and so you weren't really processing? Did you have any kind of ability to or was it you don't process in the moment? You do not. You don't. You don't have time to process anything in the moment. You're just surviving. It's a fight or flight response, right? So your, your body is, your body and mind are simply doing what it needs to do to get a story and get out and as safely as you possibly can. Um, you know, that certainly played out much more in Iraq, um, you know, because there were no rules, right? Uh, whereas the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it was, 
uh, you kind of knew when things were going to happen sort of a little bit, like there was almost like a rhythm to it. Mm Um, but you know, in Iraq, all bets are off, uh, dash, um, they, they targeted everybody and they particularly did target journalists too, because journalists are high profile, high profile kills, high profile kidnappings. Um, you know, or if another militia gets a hold of you, it might be it might be uh, it might be ransom that they might ask for. But the point is, is there's a lot less rules, and it was urban fighting as well. So you're going in between a much uh, bigger city, um, and so in that case, you know, you you really are just concentrate on what you need to do. You try to stay close to the military or whoever you're out with, and um, you know, you do the best. I, I did have a buddy actually who he they they were actually running. Um, from an explosion and he tripped and fell um, and and you know and got hurt that way just trying to get away uh, you know in Iraq we actually had a couple of colleagues who were killed they hit an they hit a, a, an explosive um, on, a, on a street that hadn't been cleaned yet and 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 they were killed as a result and so in situations like that you, you're really just in the moment there isn't any place to unpack it or to process it, it's fight or flight. Did you begin to, to get a taste for the adrenaline then? I mean, I would think as a human being, your first response is get out of danger, but you just kept going into danger. So to me, that sounds like it becomes a drug in its own way. Aside from the fact that you want to tell the story. You're not wrong. It is. It is a drug. Um, you know, I, I had sent you that. It's funny because the trailers come out and I, and I look forward to seeing the, the full film of Private War um, that talks about Marie Colvin, uh, who died in, in 2012 in Syria. But, you know, there's a part in the, in the film where Rosamund Pike as Marie Colvin is explaining the compulsion to see it. And uh, the person sitting with her, the photographer sitting with her says that you're addicted to it. And, 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 and that's right. That's right. It is a drug. Um, the adrenaline rush is absolutely that it's, it's, you are there. There's something about it that I can't entirely explain, but it, it certainly, increases your your chemical levels in your own brain and and you want to keep going after it i do think journalists also have a deep passion to tell the story there's there's such a drive to make sure that we get the story right or to get it as right as possible um and so we kind of keep going forward we keep going after it uh there's it's and you keep going back. You keep going back to the danger. It's hard to pull away from because you also develop a community, right? Soldiers are, are very similar in that sense, right? They go to war, they build a brotherhood, they build a bond, they build with their units. They're very close. And it's not really war that is hard. It's not the war that they miss. It's not necessarily the violence that they miss. It's it's the, the tribe, that they miss. Yeah, because no one else could possibly understand what it must be like other than their brethren and their sisters that are that are with them. Yeah. And that's absolutely the case. I mean, even even people that you there are people that I was in Mosul with that we when we talk on the phone or when we reach out to each other, there's there's immediately a moment where we just pick up because we we have that sense with one another. There are people I'll never see again, maybe Iraqis that I'll never see again, but I still sort of share this bond with them 
that sort of existed for that moment, for that day, for that hour, for that whatever it was, because it was a situation we were all in together. So there's something that happens within our our being and our energy in our in our even in our skin i think it's physical mental emotional uh spiritual that happens when we're with other people in a traumatic space mm-hmm. and you you both now have a deep understanding of that traumatic space and you're able to sort of reach for one another in a way that understands one another even if it's just for the moment even if it's just for a day um suffering unites people Suffering and trauma unites people in a way that most things can't. You could get a hundred people in a room who could all be on opposite sides of, say, the political aisle, maybe a bunch of Republicans, Democrats, whatever. Ask them how many have suffered from, been affected by cancer or been affected by uh, a loved one being in a war zone, maybe a, a soldier in their family or something like that. Half the room's going to stand up and they're going to come from all walks of life and they're going to be bonded together. Right. Well, I think something like September 11th or a flood or an earthquake or just recently the Woolsey Fire or a paradise where entire communities, uh, you know, got wiped out. These are the things that bring humans back to their own humanity where it's so much easier to separate from that in, in when your daily life is just sort of, you know, okay, sarah, sarah, or you have the... You know, we all have work, we all have stresses over money and love and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But really a major impactful event, all beds are off and we are, we are humankind again. And we are both those things. We are human and we are kind. I love that. I actually really, really love that. I think that's a great way to put it. Uh, suffering is humbling, yes. right? And, and humility brings our kindness out because we sort of realize that that not only are we not alone, but those other people don't want to be alone either. And so it, it draws out compassion, mm. uh, I think, and that and that creates the kindness within us um, as as human beings. Um, and I so so you're right. You're absolutely right. I think there's something that it's it's a bit of a um, hmm. in a way it's something that sort of can turn into hope. A community of people who've shared a trauma can, you know, a community of hope. So, so for example, in, you know, in Christianity, right, there's this, this idea of sort of death and resurrection, right? And there's this idea that it, things go from, things go from suffering and death to life, right? Um, spring cannot become spring until winter happens, right? So the seasons change. So, and that's in the earth as well. So, you know, if you're someone who believes in the earth, like that's also a concept, right? It's, it's something that continues to come up and there's, plenty of examples across, you know, belief systems and religions, but the idea is the same, and that is you can't, you can't have life without a little death. You can't have, uh, you can't have hope without knowing what feeling hopeless is. You can't have healing without a little suffering. Mm. Um, it's a yin and yang concept, essentially, but in a way, when you have a community of people who've been through something, they can often come together and, and, and change or come back to life together um, in a new way. Now, some places it takes longer than that, right? We've got Iraq right now, for example, that is not getting rebuilt. And it continues to be in a very tribal space because the government doesn't pay attention to its people. 
And so you have a cyclical cycle that could turn into the same thing again if they don't or if the international community doesn't step in. But what I do find is that when you talk to Iraqis, you know, there is a sense of hope and life in them that I have not seen almost anywhere else. Uh, I have this photo that I took uh, one day when we went to uh, a friend of mine, a colleague of mine, Anna, we went to a town to talk about people who had stayed behind and how they were getting food because at this point people were starving. So we go in, and on our way in, I see these two men, and they're sitting in front of a mosque in chairs. The front line is, I don't know, five to 800 meters away. It's not that far. You can see the explosions in the background. You can hear them. You can feel it. And they're just sitting there talking and drinking tea. And it's one of my favorite pictures that I took because what it made me realize was there's something so resilient in people who have faced war, they kind of just go on. And these two men were showing that. They were two men who were just, they were doing what they did. It was another war. They looked older, so I'm assuming this isn't the first thing, first war they've ever faced. Um, You know, and at least they were safe now. You know, even if they weren't safe three or four days ago, they were safe now and they had the ability to come outside and drink their tea and just talk. And there was something to that. Uh, I had another situation where I was at a, at a, at a camp for the displaced people in Iraq. Um, and a young woman pulled me out of the group of kids, because the kids will just gleefully follow you around. And she pulls me out of the group and takes me to the tent where her family is. And, you know, her husband and uh, their, their mother and, and his brother and their families were all sitting in this tent. And they had uh, and a, a Middle Eastern dish called dolma sitting in the in, in between them in their tent and they said that the men told me they were clearly militia guys and they just said look we're we're refugees and we're here and we want you to know that just because we're poor doesn't mean we don't have something to share with you so please sit and eat with us and you know they served me up a spoon and a little bowl or whatever and and, and handed it to me kind of you know sort of insistently handed it to me and said please eat please eat there's something about that that in the midst of hell, they can find a way to offer themselves and smile and pray and be hopeful. A lifetime is built upon singular moments. So I suppose if you've seen so much death and chaos and I think as you spoke to the, you know, the guys drinking their tea, it's those moments. It's the moment of sharing, of breaking bread with another human being where the whole world gets to go away and you're just right there. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's something so profound to that in me. I'm ne- I never cease to be amazed by those moments. Never. To me, those moments consistently surprise me a little bit. Um, sort of break through maybe my own walls or jadedness. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and humble me and, and in a way that's also what makes this job worth it is because we get to constantly see that humanity at its best, even when it, when it's at its worst. Have you looked into your own mortality while you were there? Have you had those moments? 
I know that it went on around you, but did you personally have any anything happen that? Sure. Uh, yeah, no, I, I definitely, I definitely had a couple of times where there was, you know, I mean, there was the day that I actually saw those two men drinking tea. We, we went into this village that was supposed to not necessarily be the front line. We were looking for people who had stayed behind and the federal police had said, Hey, we, this is clear. You can go in. So we go in with our translator and we're actually standing there talking to civilians and I hear, next to my head. Wow. And snipers had gotten back in to the area. And we're looking to take out anybody, really. And the fact that we were two white females um, in a car, um, and we didn't have the federal police directly around us at that point. So we... We we backed off into this we backed off into this corner into this house where some of the civilians were and then all of a sudden we hear it again uh, really really close you know a couple of pops um, within meters of us they had to be behind somebody's rooftop across the street I mean they they were had to be close I never actually saw them we jumped into the car we hear a cling behind the car and we squealed away around the corner to where the federal police were, they would often use a house uh, as kind of their base for wherever they were um, because the Iraqi army uh, would come in, they would clear an area, and then the federal police would kind of come in and hold the line. Like that was sort of their job. They would come in to, to sort of hold it. And so as soon as we got there, one of the commanders came to the to the window and we were asking him, how do we get out? And again, we hear you know, Clang's right behind us, and he actually jumped in with us, and we, we squealed away again um, to get out of, of the neighborhood. Uh, had another situation where we were in a, we were actually in, a, in like a caravan situation where we were following between two tanks uh, in, in the streets of Mosul, and we were actually headed to an area where the generals were, the generals were coming in to sort of build the morale of the troops, right? So the area was supposed to be cleared. That was actually the biggest, biggest thing was, um, the biggest part of it was uh, the, the snipers, right? Because the snipers would come, the snipers would come back in. Um, they would, you know, so even if, if, if all of the bombs and everything had dropped, they would, they would try and come back in and throw mortars or try and shoot. We were crossing a road that was being considered rather dangerous, actually. And as soon as we stepped on the gas, uh, we felt kind of a bang up against the, the the back of the car, or maybe it was against the tank that was behind us. I couldn't really tell. And and a small explosive. I don't think it exploded a lot. I think it was a small mortar that didn't uh, that didn't go off. Uh, but the the tank that was behind us was suddenly not behind us anymore. And we had to race forward. And of course, you know, I, I sort of ducked in the seat and cursed, um, <laughs> as is, you know, as is done. But, you know, there were a few occasions like that when they were, when we were out there. Uh, of course, if you were out on the front lines and you're with the army, especially if you were with a sniper, you're definitely hiding with them as they're shooting and being shot at. And so I was out there on several occasions, you know, that were like that as well, where you're just kind of, you know, over the course of nine months, you're just out right out there on the front line. Um, and so you're on the rooftops of the houses or the rooftops of the buildings and, and constantly hiding. So yeah, your mortality is always in front of you. Uh, 
you know, I definitely think there was probably parts of me that like, well, I really want to die today. Um, but I think, I think there was more fear of being kidnapped than dying, to be honest with you. You get shot and you die, it's over. Um, you you get kidnapped. That's another story. Yeah, it's, I've I've read uh, some of the stories and it's horrific, especially for women. It's bad enough for men, but sure. Yeah. And between me and a male colleague, he would die quicker than me. Mm-hmm. And that's just that's just the truth, right? In those situations, um, but you did the best you can to make the best decisions you could to stay safe. Uh, a lot of freelancers now have options to take kind of hostile environment training, and it's not a it's not a cure all. But what it does is it does two things: it gives you some battlefield awareness, so that when you go in, you can think about how to make your decisions, um, and two, it gives you some basic sort of combat medical training. So if you or a colleague or someone gets hurt, you can patch it up and get to the hospital, um, which has happened to a variety of, of, of my colleagues. Um, thankfully, I never had to use my kit. We all carry basic medical kits on us. I didn't have to use mine. You sort of take it so you don't have to use it. Um, but it definitely informed my decisions. So, you know, you learn some of the things about, you know, going into a battlefield. Okay, well, who are you going to go out with? Um, who are your contacts? Um, you know, are you going Are you going in a, you know, armored car? Are you, you know, little things like that. Are you going to end up going on a media tour where you're going with a bunch of media? Are you going alone um, with your translator? Um, all those kinds of decisions were constantly decisions we were making every day. And, and, and it was a way for us to try and stay safe. Again, that doesn't mean you're not in danger. It just may, might make it better for you, though. Like, mm-hmm. I might not stay as long. I might not stay for five or six hours. I might go out there for two, three hours and be over it and be done. Let's say, let's get out of here and go. Um, it's too dangerous. Or things like that. And like I said, I did have co- colleagues that were that were killed, and it just came from... Um, you know, uh, it came from an IED that was, that was, that hadn't exploded, that was on a road that wasn't clear. So there's definitely dangers, but when you sort of have some awareness ahead of time, you can kind of go in making decisions, thinking about what you do. And it, and, and in some ways it's getting better. Now, staff reporters typically have security with them. Somebody who's a staff reporter for a CNN or a Fox News or an Al Jazeera or whatever, they're probably going to have a security team. The freelancers didn't have that at all. We had to make the decisions on our own. Um, and that was an added weight, but, but we did it because we certainly believed in what we did. Did you um, bring home trauma? Are you, I know you're not really home because you're in Thailand, but are you dealing with post-traumatic stress? Sure. Absolutely. Uh, I, I mean, I've had insomnia for a long time. It certainly has gotten worse since I, I, um, I covered war. Um, you know, it's definitely, you know, whether it's, whether it's the way I dream or the way I don't sleep or the way I react to certain situations. Uh, it's getting better, though. I'd, I'd like to think about it uh, that way. Um, I'd like to think that there are ways to deal with it. Um, I, I, I often don't think that there's enough help that's offered to my colleagues. Um, we're only just now having the discussion, and I know you had a, a podcast on it recently, but we're only really just now having the discussion about soldier veterans who are coming home with with, uh, post-traumatic stress and who are trying to figure out ways to deal with that and not having enough help for them. Um, Journalists are barely part of the equation, but we should be talking about it for us too. 
mm-hmm. um, because we we are actually not trained to fight. We have our cameras and our pens, and and while that might be a weapon of its own, there's an element of it where we are definitely a little bit more in danger. And but yet the addiction, the adrenaline rush, is is something that continues to be part of our existence. Um, we are needed out there for the stories that we work on, but at the same time, um, there also needs to be a space where we can say, we need to stop, we need to rest, we need to go to a therapy or, you know, um, you know, I am very much into holistic ways of looking at things. So, you know, being able to find those spaces where you can go do yoga or surf or hike or find ways to connect with nature or spirit, um, something that's deep within yourself that can actually calm your mind down. I think are are really positive things. Um, Why did you choose Thailand? Uh, well, Southeast Asia in general, I think, is a space where you know it's it's Buddhist culture, and when it comes to those sort of holistic ways of thinking, and there are, I mean, there are stories here. So if something pops up, you know, I'm not far, and certainly going back to the Middle East is is. Um, you know, I'm working on projects that are actually Middle East driven right now. Um, so, you know, there there will be, uh, you know, I'll, I'll definitely be doing assignments there again. Um, it's just Southeast Asia also has a culture where you can, where, where, the, where the rest of the mind is encouraged, where the stillness of the mind is encouraged. Um, I'm actually, I'm actually doing Muay Thai right now, Muay Thai boxing. And it's very interesting kind of martial arts because when you watch these young guys who fight, their ability, their stillness is masterful. Um, And you have these young kids who are anywhere from 17 to early 20s, 21, 22. They've got 200, 250 bouts under their belt at such a young age. And when you talk to them, and as I've, as I've started, you know, really on the, in the past week started training a little bit is they're, they're teaching me, they're teaching me calm breathing. And that really, it's about you. It's not about your opponent. It's about, it's about you, um, whether or not you have the readiness and the stillness and, and the mind to, to complete each, each jab, each move, uh, with precision. And, and it's, it's very much, there's, there is a sense of meditation, in it that you see them uh see with them that i find is really interesting and so it's things like that that i feel like within within the southeastern culture there really is a value for uh stillness of mind which is something i think um most journalists don't always know how to how to attain because we are locked in and married to the job (laughs) you can't imagine doing anything else it's hard. Different yeah. formats of it, right? I mean, I like you can it. go into day to day. You can do day to day coverage, documentary. You can do. You can write. You can do. I mean, there's various. It, it's one of the beauties of journalism is that it does actually incorporate a lot of artistic and aesthetic ways of delivery and communication. Um, but at the heart, I mean. I'm a journalist, as are my colleagues, you know, whether we're covering a war zone or whether we're covering a special interest culture story, which I have colleagues who do that and are absolutely incredible storytellers. You know, I have a a friend of mine, Corinne uh, Redfern, who who writes a lot about women's issues in Southeast Asia. Um, And she and another friend of mine. 
uh, they actually were key into bringing up the child brides stories that were happening in places like Bangladesh and Southeast Asia, other places in South Asia. Um, and so they do a lot of stories around women like that. They're amazing storytellers. They've also experienced their own um, set of, of trauma because anytime you talk to somebody who has dealt with the worst of humanity, you sort of take on their energy. You take on their space. Mm-hmm. You don't have to necessarily be on a front line for this job to, to cause you some sense of trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just one aspect of it. Uh, but when you listen to a person who has had a family member murdered, or even in the United States, or been raped, or, I mean, we, we all listen to Dr. Ford tell her story on television to Congress, and it ripple had a ripple effect yes, it did. to the entire country. I mean, you had comedians coming on that night going, what do we do? <laughs> what do we say? Um, so there is something that happens, and when you're a journalist, you're doing that quite consistently. And are, you're working on a book right now, correct? Yes, I'm working on a manuscript right now. Um, and it, it takes it takes a process. It takes time. Um, is it a, it's is a, it a, a film it, or a book? Book. Okay. Book. Yeah. So so yeah. Um, so so the writing takes the writing is actually a unique element of therapy. To be honest with you, um, you're having to relive it a little bit. You're having to sort of process through the memories. I'm having to pull out all my pictures and journals and stories that I wrote even on the record and just kind of to sort of capture what was going through it. Because there's some things you sort of push back in your own memory, um, and and the memory also plays tricks on you a little bit too. And so it's it's a matter of even even. After asking my colleagues questions like, oh, we went out together that day. Do you remember such and such? Um, you know, I, I had a friend of mine who uh, who is older than I am and who has been in the profession longer than I am, and, and she told me that after she had come out of Iraq, she had a therapist who suggested she write a, a screenplay. And so she did it as, as therapy. And, and, you know, and, and hopefully it's something that at some point turns into to more for her, but, but, you know, it was a way for her to put down paper, uh, things that had, things that had happened. And, and I think that, I think that doing this is doing the same thing for me. I think in a way there was an inspiration in, in, in that because it was like, well, if I can put it down on paper, then it's almost like I can process through it because I certainly had no time to process it while it was happening. I certainly had, I had another friend who told me months ago, he said, in order to write about this place, you have to step away from this place. Yeah. And he's right. Well, you become your own Russian doll and you keep opening up you know, the next level of yourself and you find another little you and you just keep pulling at the Russian dolls until eventually, I suppose, you get to the the final one and your book is done. <laughs> if the book is, you know, exactly. the book of our life, of course, isn't ever done. But um, yeah, wow. Ash, it's extraordinary. Um, absolutely. Tell people how they can find you, keep track of you. Yeah. So, well, Twitter and Instagram are, are my two uh, my my two biggest social media um, things right now, um, and and both of those are at at Beatnik Journal. Um, there, the yeah, I'm I'm on those far more. Um, it's Journal J that I've taken. A, I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. Uh, I just want to make sure. So B E A T N I N I K. 
J I K like a beatnik, and then J O U R N O. So, in other words, short for journalist, beatnik, like Allen Ginsberg or Kirak or something. Um, I'm actually most influenced by those guys, and then uh, and then journo, so like journalist but shorter. Yeah, I'll put links on uh, HeyHumanPodcast.com too, so people can find you really easily in case they forget or you know whatever. That's easy to remember. Yeah, no, I've taken a break from Facebook for the moment. Um, that doesn't mean I won't get back on it. But I think that with Facebook, um, everyone was on it for stuff in Iraq and in the Middle East. And to be honest with you, you know, a lot of people talk about taking breaks, but then they can't because even social media is addicting. And I've said, you know, let's just take some time away. Let's deactivate it for a little bit. And I can't tell you how freeing it can be, <laughs> but, um, but with, with, uh, with both Instagram and Twitter, I keep up every day and, um, people are welcome to find me on those and follow me and, and reach out if they have questions or anything like that. I'm, I'm happy to, uh, interact. Yeah. And thanks to Twitter, you and I connected cause you had heard Rachel Cadence episode. And yes. So that, which was so good. Yeah. yeah she's so, so wonderful. Good. Yeah, so I'm really, I appreciate the fact that you reached out and, and said hello, and um, it's really my pleasure to have you on the show. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. I, I was really, um, I was really just tickled to listen to different ones of your podcasts because uh, just, it's just real people, um, you know, and I don't, you know, and I would tell anybody this, but it's almost like, it's almost like you've done the podcast version of Humans of New York. Um, <laughs> but this time we get to actually hear people talk and it's such a pleasure to talk with you. You have such a sweet spirit. Thank um, you. And so I really enjoy the opportunity to have a conversation with you. Thank you. It's very kind of you to say that. I appreciate it. Uh, Ash, I wish you all the success and uh, keep me posted on the book so I can keep everybody else posted. Well, thank you. Yeah. I appreciate it. I will. Thank you for having me on. I really do appreciate that. Absolutely. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye.